Good morning, Whitefields. It's good to see you. It's so good to be here with you. I, I just truly enjoy gathering together on Sundays and taking communion and worshiping the Lord and studying His Word. So, uh, We're going to continue our study that we've been doing through the book of Genesis here on Sunday morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to please open them up, turn to Genesis chapter 4, and let's go ahead and pray and ask for God's Spirit to give us uh, wisdom and revelation as we study His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to You with expectant hearts, Lord, because faith uh, carries with it expectancy. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning with faith. And, Lord, we, we come with the expectancy that you are here, that you are going to speak to us. You're faithful, Lord, to speak to us every time we open your holy, precious word. And we pray that you'd speak to us this morning and give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would be here and just transform us all the more into the image of Christ. Bring conviction, bring challenging, bring encouragement, and bring uh, comfort to those who need it. Lord, you know exactly where we're at and what we need. And thank you, Lord, that you are our all in all, and you are here this morning to minister to us from your word again. So we give you permission to speak to us this morning, and we ask that you give us insight and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis, uh, we are studying through Genesis. We've been doing this, I think this is our fifth week now in Genesis. And as we do it, we are seeing the gospel every step of the way from the creation down to now where we're at, where the man has fallen into sin. They've been uh, pushed out of the Garden of Eden and, uh, and that's where we're at now. But in every step along the way, we see the good news. And that's so glorious. We see in every chapter, in every story, we see a glimpse of the gospel. You know, as I've said many times, and I'll continue to say it, is that the Bible is one grand story. It is a grand narrative. It, it's not, the gospel is not just a part of the story of the Bible. It is the whole story. It is the whole deal. And, and uh, our goal as a church, our goal as Christian people as individuals is to get to know this great and glorious gospel and just behold it and savor it and let it just sink down deep into our hearts and just fill our minds and then let the implications of that gospel be worked out in our lives as it affects every area of our lives and changes the way that we live. Genesis is an Old Testament book. In fact, uh, you can't get any more old than this testament right here. This is about as old as it gets, right? Uh, but it's still, it's all about the gospel. And that's what we see going through. It's all about the salvation and grace of God. And that's what we've been seeing as we've been studying so far. And that's what we're going to continue to see. Uh, last week we talked about the people try to make for themselves to cover up their shame. And we talked about the true covering that only God can provide. That truly covers our sin and our shame. That ultimate covering that is found in Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who clothes us in his righteousness. This week we're going to be looking at chapter 4. This is the story of Cain and Abel. And it's a story that is familiar probably to most people. 
Um, but I hope that as we look at it today, we can get a fresh perspective on it. We can get some new insight about how this message speaks the gospel to us and, and how it uh, applies to our lives. And I pray that we would be both encouraged and challenged as we read it, and that we'll get a glimpse of the gospel here as well. So if you have your Bible, read along with me. We're in Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read the first 16 verses. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. My message today, if you saw your bulletin, it's titled East of Eden. Uh, I purposefully didn't title it Cain and Abel, although that might be the more obvious title for this section. Um, the, the reason I titled it East of Eden instead of Cain and Abel is because I think that this is more than just Brother Abel. There's more going on here than this. Essentially, what we see here is the first account of life in general, East of Eden. That phrase is used twice in the, in the verses surrounding this. We read here at the end of verse 16, it says that Cain went to live east of Eden. But it also says in chapter 2, one of the last verses, it says that God drove them out of the garden to the east of Eden. And, uh, and this idea of living east of Eden, it's a euphemism that's been used in literature as well. And probably you, you've heard it reference east of eden the idea of being east of eden is it's an allusion to life in a fallen world life outside of paradise and so what we see here in genesis chapter 4 is really the first it's a case study the first case study of life east of eden life in a fallen world that is uh, whereas adam and eve you know they were created by god they enjoyed life in eden Cain is the first child who's born of a woman. He's the first child who experiences life in this world the way that we do. Uh, you know, he's born after Adam and Eve's sin. He is the first person born with an inherently sinful nature. And, and he's born into a fallen world just as we are. He's the first person to experience life as we know it too. And, uh, and the realities that 
Cain encounters in his life in this story are realities that we all encounter because we all are born and live east of Eden, just like Cain, in a fallen world. And the realities that I want to focus on today, which are part of life east of Eden, are worship, sin, and grace. These are going to be our three points today. Worship, sin, and grace. So what that means is that the story of Cain and Abel, this is not just the story of what happened, but it is the story of what happens. It is the true story of the human existence, and, it, and it's the story of real life east of Eden. In a world where worship, sin, and grace are realities that we encounter every day. So first off, let's start talking uh, by talking about worship. What do we see about worship here? This is the first instance in the Bible where we see people intentionally, actively worshiping God. Going out and and making a sacrifice. That is the form that it takes, their worship takes, is, is sacrifice, an offering. They give something of their own as an offering, as a as an act of worship to God. These two men, Cain and Abel, they both brought a sacrifice from their given trades and their given occupations to present to the Lord. What they had, they gave. Cain was a farmer. So what does he bring? He brings grain, produce, vegetables. Abel's a shepherd. So what does he bring? He brings a sacrifice from what he had, which was sheep. He brings a lamb. Each of them brought a sacrifice that cost them something. But God had regard for Abel's sacrifice, and he had no regard for Cain's sacrifice. Now, why was that? This is a question that has got people pondering for 2,000 years, or actually more, because this is older than that, okay? So, so a long time. Theologians, Christians, uh, before us, you know, Jewish theologians, they pondered this. They all wrote a lot of ideas. Why is it? Because it's not totally clear just from a, a surface reading of the text. Uh, you know, was it that God likes meat and not vegetables? If you had asked my kids, they would say, yeah, probably that's right. Meat good, vegetables bad, you know? Uh, could be, but some have suggested that uh, the reason why God, as I'll say this, at this point, there was no law. We don't read that God had told them how to sacrifice or what to sacrifice, and we don't know necessarily, even if relating to the law, if this was a sin offering, it seems that it was an offering of worship. So, even then, if you look at the law, Leviticus, later on you'll see that it was permissible. There were different kinds of sacrifices. You could have brought grains and produce, or you could have brought animals, depending on the sacrifice and the time and the reason. So, I don't think... It's so simple as just, well, the one shed blood and the other didn't. Uh, Here's what I see, and I I want you to see this too. On the surface, Cain and Abel are essentially the same. We cannot find a real, like, big difference between Cain and Abel just from reading this text on the surface, right? Uh, You know, what was the difference between Cain and Abel? What made the difference here? You know, was Abel like the good boy who obeyed his parents and went to church and got straight A's, you know, and was polite? And was Cain just like this crazy rebellious guy with a mullet and a Megadeth t-shirt, you know, like ditching out on church to go smoke cigarettes and drink a 40 out of a paper bag and, you know, and and he's just shaking his fist and cursing God? Well, no, not at all. Here's what we know about Cain from this. Cain and Abel, same. They both work hard. 
They both have respectable occupations. They both believe in God, okay? They both sacrifice to God. Cain here, he's going to church. He's sacrificing to God. He's worshiping God, and he wants to please God. Do you see that? He's upset when he doesn't please God. He, he desires to please God. So it's not that Abel's like this awesome, you know, apple of his parents' eye, and Cain is this rebellious kid. Not at all. We see that on the surface, they're exactly the same. They both love God. They want to please God. They worship God. Now, uh, so on the surface, we can't see any reason why God would receive Abel's sacrifice and reject Cain's sacrifice. And that's exactly the point. That's what we have to see. That Abel and Cain look exactly the same on the outside. Therefore, the issue must be something which is not on the outside. It must be something which is not an outward difference between them, but an inward difference. Uh, There is something wrong with Cain's heart. That's what's revealed here. There is something wrong with Cain's heart, and God sees it. We don't, because we can't see that, but God sees it, and that's what's revealed here. In, In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, probably you've heard this verse before, but it's important. It tells us that, for the Lord, God, God says this himself, he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees, because man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So we're looking at this story, and we don't see what the Lord sees. What the Lord sees is, he, he doesn't just see what Cain and Abel bring in their hands. He sees what they bring in their hearts when they come to worship. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us some insight into why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and why he rejected Cain's sacrifice. And and what it says there is essentially this, that Abel presented his sacrifice by faith and Cain did not. That's the difference between the two sacrifices. Not what they had in their hands, but what they had in their hearts. One came with faith in his heart, the other came with unbelief in his heart. And not just the acts of worship. It wasn't just the acts of worship that mattered. It was the motivation behind why they presented those acts of worship and sacrifice. That made all the difference. So think about this. If Abel presented his sacrifice by faith, and, well, well, what does that mean? Faith in what? Does this mean that Abel believed in God, but Cain didn't? I don't think so, because later on, we see that Cain is carrying on a conversation with God. He obviously believes in God. Uh, that's the, what the faith that Abel had, and, and what, the, what is the unbelief that Cain had, what is that? We've got to think about that a little more. It wasn't just faith in the existence of God, because Cain had that kind of faith too. But Abel's faith must have been then faith in the character of God and in the promise of God. See, the thing that sets these two guys apart is that Abel had faith in the character of God. That God was good, that God was gracious, that he's loving, that he's sovereign, and that he loves to bless his children. And Abel had faith in the promise of God. You know, Cain and Abel would have known from their parents about the promise of God of coming salvation that we read last uh, two weeks ago when we talked about the first instance of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. 
You know, when God promised that he would send someday a man who would be born of a woman, but not of a man who would crush the head of the serpent and destroy sin and death forever. That was God's promise. That was the gospel. And Cain and Abel would have known about that promise. In fact, some some commentators, they read the first verse of of Genesis 4 and they wonder if Eve didn't expect that her son was going to be that man. But she soon found out that that wasn't the case. Um, So here's the point. Uh, Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices in different ways, with different motivation in their hearts. Abel offered his in faith, which means that it was a response to the grace of God. It was worship out of gratitude to God and for all of God's goodness and the promise of salvation. Cain, on the other hand, he didn't have the same motivation. And here's something to think about. If you're not worshiping or sacrificing to God out of gratitude in your heart for God's blessings and for his salvation, well then what is your motivation? The, the only other motivation for worshiping God then is as an attempt to earn blessing and salvation. And that's something we all need to seriously consider. What is in our hearts when we come to worship God? or when we serve God, or when we sacrifice to God as an act of worship. You know, worship by nature requires some form of sacrifice, whether it's time, or money, or material things. Worship by nature, true worship, is a sacrificial act. You're giving up something which is valuable to you. You are giving it to God as a statement that he means more to you than that Thing does. Think about this. If you give of your time, you sacrifice your time, your time is important to you, but you're stating that God's kingdom is more important to you. Your money is important to you, but the mission of God is more important to you. Your possessions are important to you, but the Lord's desires are more important to you. See, every act of worship is an act of sacrifice of some kind. But what this story is bringing to our attention is this. It's a question. We, we have to examine our hearts and, and ask ourselves, why are we worshiping? What is our motivation? What is in our hearts as we come before the Lord? Are we a Cain or an Abel? Are you an Abel who's, who's worshiping and sacrificing and bringing an offering simply out of gratitude in your heart towards God because he's blessed you, because he's saved you, because he's been so good to you, and, and he's taken away your sins and he's given you eternal life and he's poured out his love in your heart and blessed you in so many ways? Or are you a Cain who's worshiping God and bringing an offering to God, doing something for God, but doing it in order to persuade God to do something for him, in order to merit God's blessing and earn his favor, perhaps even earn his salvation. You know, there are a lot of people in the world who do exactly that. They come to to church, they come before the Lord as if they're doing God a big favor, you know? And uh, they worship and they serve, but they expect that now that they've done something for God, Now God owes it to them to do something for them. Kind of a, I scratch your back, you scratch my back with the big guy upstairs. You know, and uh, and what we see here is that that God has no regard for that type of of offering and no no regard for that type of sacrifice. That's motivated, you know, that's not motivated by faith 
in his grace, but which is motivated by trying to get something, elicit something from him. We don't know how exactly Cain and Abel realized that Abel's sacrifice was regarded by God and and Cain's was not, but it seems that Cain did not get what he was expecting as a result of his sacrifice. And, And we read that his face fell and that he became very angry. Do you know what the mark of a Cain is? Do you know what the mark of a Cain-like heart is in somebody? How does it manifest? Well, Cain is angry. Cain is jealous. Uh, He's angry at God. He's angry at God because he believes that he deserves more. And, And he thinks that God's not doing the right thing here. That God owes him a little bit more than this. Have you ever met somebody like that? Have you ever been that person, perhaps? You don't have to raise your hand, you know. But uh, a person who's angry at God because they think they deserve more, that they've earned more, and that God is not doing the right thing by not giving them what they think they deserve. Cain is jealous of his brother. That's another mark of Cain's. He's jealous of his brother because his brother was regarded by God, and he was not. And instead of saying, good job, little brother, no, he's jealous and he, and he kills him. Because Cain, in his mind, he brought an awesome sacrifice. He did a big thing for God, but God was not impressed. And that's a hard thing to face. Uh, Cain doesn't get it. You know, he says, look at all that I did for you, Lord. Look at this awesome sacrifice I made for you, this huge offering I gave. How could you have regard for my brother and not for me? In essence, Cain doesn't understand grace. Cain is self-centered and self-righteous. He doesn't understand the definition of grace, which is unmerited, undeserved favor. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it by nature. And Cain is trusting in his own good works. It's a tragedy. You know what's interesting about this story as well that helps us get this perspective? The names. The names are key. They're huge to understanding what's going on here. Because back in those days, people didn't name their kids the way that we name our kids today. You know? Like, hey, why'd you name your kid Francis? Well, I like the way it sounds. Or, you know, I I know somebody named Francis, and they're a pretty decent guy. Now, back in the day, you know, your name said something about your character. And the person who named you, they would discern something about your character and they would name you accordingly and that's why it's interesting and something you can note throughout the Bible is that as people's characters and as people's natures change their names often change right right so like we got Abram as we're going to see him soon his name becomes Abraham which means father of a multitude why because who he was fundamentally changed so his name had to change Jacob Remember what his name means? Swindler. Nice. Thanks, Mom. You know, (laughs) his name means swindler. He's a shady character. He's a dodgy guy, you know. And, uh, And God works in his life. It says God touched him. He wrestled with God. And then God changed his name to Israel. What does Israel mean? It means governed by God, led by God. How amazing, right? His character changed. Think about Simon. Jesus says, you shall no longer be called Simon, but your name will be Peter. You know what Simon means? It means shifting sand. That was his character. He was a shifty guy. But God said, no, I'm going to make you a rock. And I'm going to change your name to Peter. You know, Saul. You know what Saul means? It means desired one. 
And when Saul of Tarsus, you know, when he was fundamentally changed because he encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, his name changed as well. And he, be, he changed his name to Paul. You know what Paul means? It means small and humble. He went from being the desired one, the awesome dude, to being small and humble. That's, he said, I'm a changed man. I need a new name. And so people's names, they always are related to their character, something about them. And so think about these guys' names, and uh, it gives us some insight into the story. Cain means success. It's almost funny to read these names. Cain's name means success. It means fruitful. That's why his mom says, I did it. I got a man with the help of the Lord. Success. And then you know what Abel means? You ever, did you catch that when you were reading through it? It says, she had this boy. She was real excited. I got a boy. Yeah. And then she had his brother Abel. Full stop. You know, that's it. That's the end of the story. Abel, you know what it means? It means worthless. Thanks, mom. You know, worthless. A nobody. He's probably like, well, mom, glad to know that you love me. I guess I know what you think about me, you know. Well, what does that tell us? It tells us that Cain was the winner in the family. Abel was the loser, you know. And so when Cain is told that God has rejected his sacrifice, he's not used to that. Uh, and and he's, God has accepted the sacrifice of his loser little brother. His whole world is shaken. He falls apart. He gets depressed. His face has fallen. And uh, Cain, why? Why would God? He brings this attitude to God that I'm a winner. I'm successful. I can do it in my own strength. And God rejects it. He says, no, bud, that's not how you approach me. Why? He's self-righteous. He's trusting in his own good works. Abel, on the other hand, well, he knows he's a loser. And he just comes to God and says, God, I love you. Thank you for your grace. That's all I've got going for me. Everybody thinks I'm a loser. So, Lord, thank you that you love me. And thank you for your grace. Thank you for your promise. That's the heart that God delights in. That just, and he receives that worship. So the question for us to consider is, what is in our hearts as we present ourselves and our gifts before our God? And the admonition for us here is this, let us have the heart of Abel and not of Cain. And we're going to talk about how that happens practically, how we can ensure that we have an Abel heart and not a Cain heart as we go on today. So... So, one aspect of life east of Eden is worship. And we see it's not only important that we worship God, it's also important how we worship God. It doesn't just matter what you bring in your hands, it matters what you bring in your hearts when you come to worship God. And, uh, and there is worship that God receives and delights in, and there is worship that God has no regard for because of the motivation behind it. But what you need to also see is that just because God didn't receive Cain's offering, it didn't mean that God hated Cain. Just said, but I can't receive that kind of worship because it's all about you. It's self-righteous. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that play into the next section, which is this. The next aspect of life east of Eden that we meet here is sin. And we all know that, that sin is part of life east of Eden, where we live and we encounter it every day. And what we see about sin in this section is that the danger of sin is in its subtlety. 
The danger of sin is in its subtlety. We read that when God rejected Cain's sacrifice, he became angry and his face fell. It's a very vivid depiction of depression. You can see it on his face. And God comes to him during this time and he he ministers to him and he wants to help him get through this. And we see the heart of God in this, right? That God would not regard his act of worship is sacrifice because it was not motivated by faith but God still loved Cain very much and God wanted to help Cain to succeed and he wanted him to he wanted to warn him about the subtlety of sin before it was too late before this sin overcame him because every everybody can recognize sin when it's murder right I mean, everybody knows, yeah, that's sin. Everybody recognizes adultery, that, oh yeah, that's sin. But what's a lot more difficult, what the challenge is for us, is to recognize sin in its beginnings. When it's crouching at the door, that's the phrase that God uses, before it's blown up and becomes this huge thing that takes over your life and just ruins you. And so the Lord uses this incredible analogy. I love this analogy. It's so vivid. He says that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. Right? He's saying you have a choice to make, Cain. He says you can choose to rule over it. But if you don't, it will rule over you. And the picture of sin crouching at the door, think about things that crouch, right? It's like a, you can, I imagine like a big cat, you know, like a tiger or a lion or a panther that's crouching, ready to pounce and just rip you to shreds. And, and it hasn't happened yet. That's the big picture here. There's a big danger going on. It's crouching at the door. You know, think about this. Why do animals like tigers crouch? before they pounce. Why do people crouch down, right? Here's why. Either to hide from view, right? To just crouch behind something or hide themselves, or to make themselves look smaller than they really are, to make themselves look less threatening. You know, like I think about, you know, people crouch down when they want to pet a a kitty or a bunny. You know why? Because we don't want to freak it out, you know, because it'll run away. We want to appear less threatening so we crouch down when we talk to small children we crouch down so that we don't appear so big and scary and sin is crouching at the door why well that's the danger of sin is its subtlety it makes itself appear like something smaller than it is it makes itself appear less threatening than it really is sin presents itself as something innocent You know, stuff that you say, yeah, I shouldn't be doing that, but it's not that big of a deal, you know? It's just this little innocent thing. I've got it under control. But if you don't do anything, if you don't choose to rule over it, then it will overcome you and it will rip you to shreds. And here's the thing to consider. We all have crouching sins. I do and you do, without exception. All of us have crouching sins. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I know what my crouching sins are? Do I know that what are those things that are crouching there, appearing small, but have the potential to overcome me and just rip me apart? Usually they're things that we know about, things that we know are wrong, but that we make excuses for. They're crouching. And here's the analogy. Sin is crouching at the door, but, God tells Cain, he says, but you must rule over it. 
And, and, and that is so true. In the earliest stages of sin, in the earliest stages of whatever it might be, whether it's pride or bitterness or greed or addiction or adultery, in the earliest stages, you still have some control. Uh, you know what's going on. And, and you can do something about it to make sure that that crouching sin doesn't overcome you and take you out. Uh, God says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. Man, how vivid is that? It wants to own you. It wants to rule over you. And God is describing here that sin is not only a choice that we make, but it can become a force in our lives. A powerful force, something that can rule over us. Sin begins as a choice, but once you give in, it has the power to rule over you. You know, many of us have seen this happen in lives of people around us. Some of us have experienced this personally. The danger of sin is its subtlety. It starts out as a choice, crouching at the door, looking all innocent and small. But if you don't choose to rule over it and you let it overcome you, it becomes a force in your life that rules over you. And that's what Paul the Apostle talks about in, in Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. He says, Oh, wretched man that I am. He says, The good that I want to do, I cannot do. And the evil that I don't want to do, I just keep on doing it. And he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question with this big crescendo and he says thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord for the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death that is the gospel that is the gospel message to you and I that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to set us free from the power of sin to set us free from the bondage of sin by destroying its power completely by crushing the head of the serpent under his foot and if you are in Christ, then you are set free from the bondage and the power of sin that God is warning Cain about here. But you know what happens in this story? You saw it. Cain doesn't repent. Cain doesn't turn to God and receive that liberation, that freedom from sin. But it is available to you and I in Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel. But unfortunately, like I said, Cain does not heed this warning. Just as God warned Cain about the crouching sin at his door, the desire to overcome him and take him out, I believe that God would warn us about the same thing. And so let us ask ourselves, what are the crouching sins in my life, in your life? Do you know what they are? Let me tell you, they are not as innocent as they look. Believe me. They have the power to take you down and become an uncontrollable force in your life if you don't deal with them properly, if you don't ask the Lord to intervene and give you strength to overcome. But here's the thing about, uh, about Cain in the Bible, is that it's really easy to look down on Cain, right? It's really easy for us to have this tendency to say, man, I'm sure glad I'm not Cain. That guy's a loser, now I go away from church feeling a lot better about myself because that guy blew it and, and I don't. So I'm a good guy and he's a bad guy. And, uh, and, you know, people have this tendency to assume that the Bible exists to affirm them rather than to challenge them. For example, you know, ask yourself honestly, the first time you read through this story, 
Which character do you identify with the most? Let's be honest. Abel, who's sacrificing to God and it's received by God and he's praising the Lord and everything's great. Or, or Cain, who manipulate, tries to manipulate God and then kills his brother in cold blood. Well, most of us probably tend to identify with Abel. We tend to think of ourselves as the good guy rather than the bad guy. And I noticed this same tendency in my, my four-year-old son, right? He watches cartoons, he reads books, and then he likes to act them out. But when he acts them out, which character is he? Oh man, he's the main, he's the good guy. Of course he's the good guy. He's the protagonist. And, uh, and that's our natural tendency, to identify with the good guy in the story. And, and so we read a story like this and we identify with Abel. We say, yeah, I'm like Abel. I'm the innocent guy. And you know what? There are a lot of Cains out there who are always trying to take me down and hurt me. And yeah, Cain's an evil guy. He's a bad guy. I can't believe how bad he is. I hope he gets what he deserves. But here's the deal. The, the problem with that is this. The, the way that God describes his word is not as a, a storybook to show us the bad people so that we can see that we're not as bad as them, but it is as a mirror. God says, my word is like a mirror. And I want you to see, when you look at Cain, I want you to see yourself. That's kind of crazy, right? That's hard to take. But, but he's trying to show us that we are Cain sometimes. And he's trying to show us a mirror so that we can see the Cain-like tendencies in our own hearts and so we can repent of them so that we don't end up like Cain. So that we, are, that we can have the heart of Abel and not the heart of Cain. But if you start off by thinking that you're Cain, in the, or, sorry, that you're Abel in this story, I think you're reading it wrong. Uh, here, here's what we see, and here's what I love about the Old Testament. It's just raw. It just gives us the raw reality. It doesn't try to pretty things up. And, and a lot of times, that's how life is east of Eden. That's the life that we experience in a fallen world, where sin is a factor in everyday life, where things are not so simple, things are not black and white, and sometimes the good guys do bad things. And sometimes the bad guys actually do the right thing. And, uh, and if we consider this story again, we see this story, we can see this story as the story of a good guy who made some bad choices. Because really that's what we see in Cain, right? He, was, he started out as a, as a good guy. As a guy going to church, working hard, sacrificing to God, wanting to please God. But what happened? He let this root of bitterness take root in his heart. And instead of repenting and turning to God, he allowed this crouching sin to just overcome him and rule his life and eventually destroyed him and turned him away from God and left him even further east of Eden, outside of the presence of the Lord. And the story is essentially a warning to us, you know. It's a warning that says, look at Cain and see yourself in him. He was a good guy at the beginning. He was a hard worker. He was a worshiper. He cared about pleasing God and doing the right thing. But he let bitterness take root in his heart. And at first it was just crouching at the door. It didn't seem like a big deal, but he left it unchecked. And that root of bitterness, it grew, and it eventually took over his whole heart, his whole life, and led him to do something which he probably never would have imagined doing, killing his own brother. The danger of sin is in its subtlety. You and I, we're no different than Cain. We are no less vulnerable than Cain. We need to know that. We all have crouching sins, just like Cain did. 
but we have a choice. And by the grace of God, we can rule over that crouching sin and overcome it un- unless, so that it doesn't overcome us and become a force in our lives that rips us apart and causes destruction. So finally, the final aspect of life east of Eden, and this will be a short one, it is grace. It's grace. God was gracious to Cain in so many ways. When Cain is tempted to sin, when he's depressed, when he's premeditating his actions, God comes to him and tries to talk him through it. God comes as a counselor. He says, what are you doing, Cain? You shouldn't be doing this. You know it. You have a choice here. And later on we see when Cain has sinned and he's totally unrepentant. You see, he's only upset about the punishment that he received for his sin. He does not express remorse for what he did. God says that the blood of Abel is crying out, to the, out from the ground for justice, right? And, and what's interesting about how God deals with Cain is this. He's both just and merciful. He doesn't have to choose between the two. He is both just and merciful. He's just because he deals with Cain's sin, but he's merciful because Cain says, people are going to kill me. And God says, even though Cain doesn't repent, God is gracious to him. He's merciful. And he says, I'll put this mark on you and no one will touch you. It was, a, it was a mark of fair play that people could not exact revenge on Cain. So it's interesting that this blood cries out from the ground, right? The blood of Abel cries out from the ground and it cries out for justice. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, there's an interesting verse. It says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and that Jesus' sprinkled blood, his shed blood, speaks a better word than the word of Abel. Just as Abel's innocent blood cried out to God for, from the ground for justice, so also the blood of Jesus cries out from the ground. And believe it or not, do you know what it cries out for? It cries out for justice and mercy. But it does cry out for justice. Not the kind of justice that you might think, though. Think about this. Not justice against those who crucified him, but a different kind of justice. In, in 1 John chapter 1, we said that a few months ago. Maybe you remember this verse. Incredible verse. John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. To forgive our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. Now isn't it interesting that it uses the word justice to describe forgiveness of our sins? Because we tend, at least I'll speak for myself, I tend to think of God's forgiving my sins as being an act of mercy towards me. And it is mercy, but it is also justice, as this verse tells us. Why? Because Jesus has paid the price once and for all. And his blood cries out to the Father for justice. Because if Jesus has died for my sins, if he has paid the price, if it's truly finished, as Jesus said it's finished, as he breathed his last breath on the cross, then that means that for God to ever give up on me, for God to ever refuse to forgive me of one of my sins that I repent of, that would be unjust. Because the price has been paid. He cannot ask for two payments for that. The price has been paid. Do you realize the incredible security we have in Christ? 
Because my debt has been paid in whole by the sacrifice of Jesus on the Christ, or Jesus Christ on the cross, and yours has too. And if you put your faith in Jesus and in his finished work on the cross, you are incredibly secure because his blood cries out a better word. It cries out for mercy, but it also cries out for justice because the price has been paid. Just as Abel's blood cried out for justice, And God showed up with both justice and mercy in dealing with sin. It's an amazing foreshadowing of the gospel because in the same way, God has shown up with justice and mercy in our salvation through Christ's finished work on the cross. And we can rest in the knowledge that if we're in Christ, our sins are truly forgiven because the blood of Christ cries out as a testimony forevermore that our sins are forgiven because our debt has been paid in full. Therefore, God's mercy towards us is completely justified. And that is the assurance that we have in him. That is the gospel. And living in that assurance that in Christ we are loved and accepted and forgiven. And in Christ we have received God's favor. Living in that reality, living based upon that reality is the way that we can ensure that we will have the heart of Abel and not the heart of Cain, by God's grace. Amen? All right, let's let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your justice, Lord. And Lord, thank you that you did not give us what we deserved, but Lord, you were just, and that you dealt with our sin through Christ on the cross. And Lord, when we look to the cross, Lord, we see your love for us. We see the depths and the, we see the, the breadth of your love for us. And Lord, we thank you so much for the cross. We thank you that we have assurance in the cross. Lord, we thank you that we can be secure because the blood of Jesus cries out forevermore, speaking a better word than the word of Abel and calling out for justice and mercy. Lord, thank you that you are our advocate. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you forgive us. We love you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.